Welcome to the Modern Law Library Podcast. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I have the great pleasure of interviewing Linda Fairstein, author of Terminal City, which was one of the three nominees for the 2015 Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction. Linda, thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be with you. Thank you, Lee. Now, because of the lag time required for any uh, contest and prize, Terminal City was actually written in 2014 and given the 2015 legal prize. So by the time we're speaking, you actually have a new book out. Is that correct? That's right. Devil's Bridge, brand new. You have had prior involvement with the Harper Lee Prize. What was your involvement before? When the Harper Lee Prize was set up, I want to say about five years ago, I was one of the first three people asked to be judges for the final round of selecting authors, selecting the winning prize. I believe I was twice a judge and uh, had the distinct pleasure of being uh, in the audience when we're actually on the podium when the first uh, award was given and we had a panel discussion about lawyers writing fiction. So uh, it was a really lovely, meaningful event to be associated with. Uh, I was actually one of the selection, part of the selection committee this past year, and it was a real pleasure to read your book. I have to admit, I had not read prior books in the Alex Cooper series, but for any readers who also have not read any of uh, Linda's books yet, you are able to just jump in. There's obviously an you know overarching journey for these characters, but you really can pick up any book. I think that one thing that people always talk about and most struck me was how the city of New York is itself a character in your story. I learned so much in Terminal City about Grand Central Station, and you took us from the subterranean tunnels beneath it to the rooftop and the clock. When you are coming up with a new book for this series, and um, your new book, Devil's Bridge, is 17th in this series, what comes to you first? Is it the setting or is it the plot? How do you form your ideas for the next book in a series? It's definitely the setting for me, Lee. I'm always looking for a world to go into that's sort of rich, both in the mysterious nature of what I can do with it, but also my own self-branding, the history. As a prosecutor in New York for so many years, I got to know the city really well in ways that uh, the average resident or tourist certainly doesn't. So places that seem very benign and elegant and culturally iconic often have had bad things happen in them. So I'm, I'm always looking for a world in which to go. Uh, Terminal City was easy for me. As a child, I grew up in a small city, Mount Vernon, right outside of New York. And so I came into the city by train with my mother or grandmother to go Christmas shopping or to a theater in New York. And Grand Central Terminal was my gateway. That's I came in 28-minute train ride and got out. And it is just a mammoth structure, magnificently conceived and designed. We think of it as a train terminal, but from the great days when train travel was the way Americans got around, and especially wealthy Americans who could travel, it was long before uh, flight. So the, the terminal was designed in 1913, and when the centennial was being planned in 2011-2012, uh, there was so much media about it that it gave me an opportunity to go in, to ask for tours, 
and it just became an overwhelming favorite choice as the setting for a crime novel, not only because of the magnificence of its structure 100 years later, but also so many um, nefarious elements, uh, uh, sub-basements which have never been put on blueprints because architects were afraid of sabotage long before the terrorist period we know today, catwalks with glass brick so that you're soaring 18 stories above the terminal floor, but it looks like you're going to fall right through to the ground. The clock on the outside that literally has doors behind it that open so the clockmaker can get outside to repair it. It just endless opportunities to create trouble, uh, including that you can walk from Grand Central Terminal underground on platforms and tracks to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, something I never knew, where President Franklin Roosevelt's railroad car, armored car from World War II still sits. So once I saw the terminal from the inside, uh, behind the scenes, I knew I had a thriller. I just knew I could do it from there. Obviously, like you said, the Centennial allowed you special access to Grand Central, and there was lots of press about it. But how do you ordinarily have to go about researching the sites? For instance, Devil's Bridge, what's your star location for for this new novel? So Devil's Bridge, uh, my setting, the world I chose to explore, is all set on the Hudson River, which is, of course, the entire western border of Manhattan. And you start at the mouth of this great river, and there's the Statue of Liberty. So it's an iconic figure known not only to New Yorkers, but worldwide as a tourist location. Many of my readers will never get to New York, but they write and say, it's like any book with a sense of place, the way I read Agatha Christie as a child to go to Cairo or Mesopotamia or London. So what I love to be able to do is give the reader that sense of place. And so you start, and I would encourage anybody who's writing books, make phone calls, do research. The statue is is run by the National Park Rangers. And so you can take ordinary tours, which is usually the way I go, go first to a place. I get a ferry ticket and take the walking tour of Staten Island. Uh, then, as in this case, I wrote to uh, the office of the rangers that oversees uh, the park and is responsible for security and everything else there and ask for a tour. Uh, sometimes even if you're not a known author and you're researching, the people in charge are happy when you say you're doing authentic research to, to let you win. Sometimes it's a little more of a struggle. It certainly has helped me at this point in my career that there are books under my belt that show that I take the history very seriously and, and can get in. But I was just asked this question by a reader, and I said some of the places are run by historical societies who are usually very happy to open their doors and, and give tours. So keep at it. And then nothing, if you're writing, nothing replaces physically being at or on site and being able to get all the nuance, the smells, the sounds, the feel, the look of the infrastructure. It's just a priceless way to do research. Let's talk about your readership. Your first book came out, uh, I believe, in 1994. Is that correct? 96. 96. So it's been almost 20 years that you have spent with these cast of characters, Alex Cooper being the, the main character, this this woman who works for the sex crimes unit um, of the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, uh, which is a position that you actually had. 
when you spend this much time with characters and readers grow to know and love them, have you run into readers feeling like they know your characters better than you do and having very definite opinions that, oh, no, your character would not do this? That's such an interesting question, Lee. Uh, you know, when you have, when you're lucky enough to have a readership that's large and has grown with every book as in a series, it's hoped that one does. Most of them are terrifically loyal. But yes, people develop relationships with fictional characters. They become friends in a sense. These are the readers who want to see your character back the next year, who are interested in a different setting, a different locale, how she and Mike, she being Alex Cooper and Mike, will respond to something placed in there in front of them. What, what will they do with this kind of jeopardy or with this particular defendant? So readers, I'm, I'm laughing, and I don't think your listeners will uh, see the smile on my face, obviously, but it's, it's very funny because I never set out to have a intimate relationship between Alex Cooper and Mike Chapman. She's a prosecutor, and in my first books, I wanted her to have two NYPD detectives, smart, college-educated, really good guys, because they're the guys I learned from as a young prosecutor, how to investigate, how to handle victims and witnesses, cover my back, all that stuff. It was about three books in, to your point, that I was at a bookstore in Scottsdale, Arizona, and someone said to me, you know, when are you getting Alex and Mike together? And my first thought was, get a grip, this is fiction. My husband quickly said to me, you know, this is a great thing. Don't belittle them. Don't say it's only fiction because characters come back to your series only if they attach themselves, readers come back to the series, only if they attach themselves to your characters, if they begin to treat these people like real people, people they want to see again. So my readers, many of my readers were getting the sexual tension between Alex and Mike and thinking that there should be a relationship long before I ever plotted one or long before I was conscious that that should be a way to go. So yes, people develop a, a kind of ownership. They are quick to tell you, many readers, what they'd like to see happen. Do this, don't do that. At one point, Alex had a romance with a French, a French restaurateur throughout two or three books, and people had a really visceral reaction. There were the people who didn't like him and didn't want her wasting her time with them, and there were people who thought he really had interesting traits and got her abroad and out of the city to a new location. So it's, um, you'll never please everybody all the time, but it's quite a wonderful phenomenon that people do attach themselves to your characters as though they're real. It's a, it's a real compliment, I think. In Devil's Bridge, you actually tried a different thing um, and had Mike Chapman be the narrator for the first time. What led you to do that? So this in Devil's Bridge is what I think is a really daring twist. Um, it was a secret my editor and I had together. So oftenly at bookstores, people will say at the end of a session, is there anything else you want to write? What other, if you could, in addition to doing the series, what else would you like to do? And for years I've been saying I would love to get inside Mike Chapman's head. I've seen the world now through 16 books, through Terminal City, from Alex's point of view. Um, why does she like Mike so much? Why, why can't we see the world through his eyes, see Alex, what he likes about her, what he doesn't, what's kept him from making this relationship more personal? What does he like about the professional side? 
so I often given that answer, I'd like to be in Mike Chapman's head, his POV, point of view, as we call it in books. And my editor two years ago heard me say this at a bookstore, took me to lunch and said, you keep talking about this, why don't you just do it? I said, well, actually, I was afraid of you telling me, no, you're the editor and this is the Alex Cooper series. And he said, Mike Chapman is probably the reason male readers like your books. Um, he's a strong character. He's a very smart detective. He's got a great sense of humor. He really grounds Coop. And that's probably why a lot of men come back. Women seem to like his humor and his character. And women write to me and say, I've got a crush on Mike Cooper. Where can I meet the real, I'm sorry, Mike Chapman. Where can I read the, meet the real Mike? So I've had this real desire to do his point of view. And Ben Sevier, my fabulous editor, said, just if you think you can do it, do it. And I felt very comfortable because I've written Mike Chapman's dialogue for 16 books. Uh, I've had to explain what Alex likes about him. The, the reader or listener has been with him since the series began. So I just felt all I had to do was go deeper, put Alex out of sight, and, and let Mike take over the narration. So for new readers, it's still an interesting twist because it happens 70 pages in without being a spoiler. It's all over the book jacket that it happens. And for <laughs> readers of the series, I think it's a huge surprise and all of them know Mike, and so it's uh, as much as a surprise as it is, it's also somewhat familiar territory. So over the almost 20 years that you've been writing this series, how has your career changed, and how has your life changed? Oh, dramatically, <laughs> in both ways. I started prosecuting in 1972 when I graduated from the University of Virginia School of Law. Frank Hogan was the DA in Manhattan at the time. There were about 200 70 or 80 prosecutors on the staff, but only seven women. It was, for those young lawyers listening, a very different time for women in the law. Mr. Hogan didn't believe that women should be in the courtroom trying cases, as he said, involving blood and guts. So we were expected to be in the library, law library, doing appellate work. After his death in 1974, we were let into the courtroom. There were only a handful of us. And when the pioneering new special victims unit was started, I was asked to take it over. So I did that, and it's the work, honestly, I never thought I'd stay in the DA's office that long, 30 years, but it's the work that kept me there. Uh, we were able to really agitate for legislative reform in the area of sex crimes and domestic violence. I was one of the first prosecutors to be invited to use DNA in 1986, not accepted by any court in the country till 89. Uh, just radical changes that I saw in the law that kept me in place. It was just such exciting work. I had always wanted to write, and so I was asked to do a nonfiction book, which was published in 93 called Sexual Violence. And when I got permission to do that from the City Ethics Board, I asked if I could also do crime fiction when I finished that book. So you had the year right, 94 was when I started to write Final Jeopardy, published in 96. So I stayed in the DA's office. I could have left at that time with book contracts because even though the book business has suffered lately, again, with a smile on my face, they were more lucrative than prosecutorial work. But I wouldn't go because I just loved the, the work that I was doing. I keep my CLE credits very, very up to date. I still do consulting and a lot of pro bono work for victims of violence. So I'm still a member of the bar and very proud of that and happy to be that. But I've gone on to do 
one book a year, and that's the most radical change in my professional career. I miss the DA's office every day, as my friends there know. I'm in touch with them constantly and would still love to walk into court and try a case, which is not likely to happen. Well, even in Terminal City, you are talking about some very cutting-edge forensic techniques. Do you use your former contacts in the DA's office and the people who you met throughout your career to help alert you to these new things that you could then use in your books? Well, that's one of the ways. I mean, I stay keenly on top of it. I have many friends who are still in the forensic biology unit at the medical examiner's office, those in the DA's office. I'm a member of the American Association of Forensic Scientists in the the jurisprudence section. So it's very easy for me to stay current. I know the science well. I know the the trends in in forensic sciences. And I go to the lab a couple times a year. Uh, Usually I lecture to the lab and in exchange I'll get a tour and I'll get the latest scoops and many of the, um, I'm thinking of my book launch, uh, the first night of Devil's Bridge, one among many DA friends who were there, one of the uh, top forensic biologists who is in charge of the DNA lab in Manhattan, in New York City, was at the signing. So get some good book readers mixed in. Uh, It's always ways to stay current. And that means a lot to me. It's just, it will always fascinate me as a, a part of the criminal justice system and the mix with forensics. So that's an easy part. And the fun part is to get to use it in the novels. Circling back to the Harper Lee Prize, you were one of the you know, final three nominees in the same year that Harper Lee suddenly released the, the first book she'd ever written, Go Tell a Watchman. How did you take that news? Have you heard about Go Tell a Watchman? Have you read it yourself? Have you had a chance with all that you've been doing to, to read the book? Well, uh, two things. One, just such an honor as a judge, no less a nominee with Terminal City, to be connected to the Harper Lee name. Uh, I'm one of the many millions of people around the world who grew up, in a sense, with To Kill a Mockingbird and really loved the book, have gone back to it many times. The minute I was announced and asked to be a judge, I got another copy and read it again. I did the same thing. (laughs) Right? It's a huge (laughs) honor for me. I think it's you know, on a bookshelf, probably 10 bookshelves at home that I can't even find the old copies of. And I, I have to say, frankly, I have not bought or read Go Set a Watchman yet, and I probably will break down at some point and do it. I was very nervous when, uh, this is more the writer in me, that, that this is a manuscript that Har- that was not published when Harper Lee wrote it, that was, A, rejected, but well with with a view to crafting it for what became the great book, To Kill a Mockingbird. I think the part that troubles me is that it's been in a draw for a long time, that when Harper Lee was in good health and good shape, she chose not to publish it. And I know Alabama has sent in a committee for an afternoon to examine her state of mind, but I know that she's very ill and unwell and uh, in an institution. And I just concern myself with the fact that I hope nobody's taken advantage of her by publishing a book that she chose not to publish. So I'll read it at some point, but I've been reluctant to do it. And I think very a very short time ago, there was another announcement that there were other things that were in her safe deposit vault that 
people who make profit from their publication are thinking of releasing. I just have so much respect for the writer herself and her own choices about publishing or not that part of me just is a little concerned about it. Yeah, understandable. You know now many other people in the same industry that you are, you know, publishing mysteries, publishing crime thrillers, publishing all sorts of different kinds of books. If you got to take another series, another person's series for a spin, what do you think would be the most fun to step in and write if it was not your book, if you had to adopt another person's characters? This is almost uncanny, Lee, that you're asking this, because I don't think it's been public anywhere. There's one series that shaped, I think, really both my careers, the law and the desire to write books, literature, if you will. And that's the Nancy Drew series that I read as a kid. Uh, I loved her sleuthing and, you know, the smart, the smart kid who was solving all the crimes, the hidden staircase, the missing locket, all of those things. I read them voraciously. Oh, Linda, you're getting me excited. <laughs> well, in, in addition to saying I wanted to write the Mike Chapman point of view done, I have been saying to my agent for years that I would love to write a modern-day Nancy Drew, uh, and I'd love to write it for middle school kids, which is kind of the 9 to 12 age, which is about when probably at age or 9 Nancy Drew was first put in my hands, and that was my great gift for any occasion. I was allowed to have a new Nancy Drew book, and... I cherish them. So I started writing this spring after after Devil's Bridge was all in wraps. I started writing the character's name is Devlin Quick, and she's a 12-year-old who lives in Manhattan. Uh, she is very curious. She has a lot of attitude. She's a little more modern-day urban than Nancy Drew. And the big twist is that uh, her mother is the first woman police commissioner in New York, in the NYPD, which is a job I wanted to have in the 1980s when the then mayor of New York, Mayor Dinkins, asked me to take another job, and I didn't want that job, but I said I'd love to be police commissioner. And his transition team just laughed at me and said, you know, no chance of a woman in the NYPD. So um, I've given Devlin Quick, a mother who's a police commissioner, and that gets Devlin access to things like the DNA lab because her mother knows the chair and they have dinner together so Devlin can find her way in there. She can get facial recognition software. She's just a very smart kid, good sense of humor, and a little cheeky sometimes, but she is determined to solve the first crime that's come her way. So I wrote 22 pages this spring, and it's now going to be the first book in a, in a series about Devlin Quick. So this will be probably late 2016, but it's meant to be aspirational for kids. Uh, she wants to be a lawyer, a prosecutor like her mother was before being police commissioner, and she loves to learn. She loves libraries, so she loves to, to read books and get knowledge that way, and she's a sleuth. So that's the series I wanted to write, and I'm about 112 pages into the first manuscript. Well, that is incredibly exciting, and I will definitely be purchasing that series that's that's great thank you I, well thank I'm you so, so much for, to break it here to you it's great it's i know great fun for me and it's, <laughs> i love I your response scoop. don't curb your enthusiasm that's it. oh no that is very exciting and maybe we'll um, be able to get you back on in 2016 to talk about your is it now is it middle grade or is it young adult no it's middle grade interestingly enough um young adult they apparently consider 13 up to adult 
And in young adult, the author is allowed to use foul language. Um, the kids can have sex. Just a world I did not want to go in. I mean, that's mm. adult fiction if you want to go there. So this is really meant for what they do call middle school, 9 to 12. Well, Linda, thank you so much for speaking with us, for sharing that exciting news, and uh, for being one of our nominees. I, I very much enjoyed your book uh, and was so pleased to be able to um, have you be one of the three three top nominees. It was a thrill to get that phone call, to be picked by the judges, to be in that category, and just to be touched to the name Harper Lee is such an extraordinary honor. I'm very grateful for it. Well, Thank you all for joining us for the Modern Law Library. I've been your host, Lee Rawls, and thank you so much to our guests. Thank you, Linda. Thank you for having me.